success doesn't always feel like success. And when it looks like you've made it to the rest of the world, you can be left feeling like there's still so much to do, but without a clear direction or plan. On the Success That Last podcast, we're going behind the scenes with business owners, real estate investors, and industry consultants to deconstruct the complicated topic of success. We'll be exploring questions, strategies, and experiences that help create clarity and confidence surrounding your financial decisions. Here's your host, Jared Siegel. Welcome. Today's show comes to you in unusual times. COVID-19, coronavirus, it seemingly has turned the world upside down. We're going to go ahead and give today's podcast a shot. It's going to be the first time that I record it from our new office. This new office looks a lot like my master bedroom. This social distancing has created new challenges, but certainly new opportunities for each and every one of us. We certainly don't control the environment that we're in right now, but we do have a choice on how we respond to it. So it's in that spirit that Delap was committed to continuing to bring creative, original content to help our clients and friends navigate these challenging moments that we find ourselves in right now. That's why I wanted to reach out to Kevin Adams of The Mountain Group. Kevin founded The Mountain Group about 25 years ago, but he started his turnaround career in 1982. As is true in life sometimes, success begets success, and Kevin found himself routinely invited into opportunities to help businesses identify opportunities to turn things around. Throughout his career, Kevin has helped over 100 organizations in a turnaround environment. Chances are if you own a business, The rapid onset of COVID-19 has introduced you to a new level of economic and financial uncertainty. So in today's conversation with Kevin Adams, we were hoping to garner and gleam some of the insights that Kevin's picked up helping over 100 companies navigate challenging times and ultimately turn them around to live to experience a brighter tomorrow. So with that, let's jump into today's conversation with Kevin Adams of The Mountain Group. Kevin Adams, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Jared. Good to be here. I think we're demonstrating our grit today. Here, you and I are uh, grinding this thing out uh, in the midst of kind of unusual times with this COVID-19 and coronavirus. So uh, this is my first episode from my master bedroom, my temporary workspace. <laughs> well, it, it looks pretty well set up. It's pretty exciting. Yeah. Make sure the kids are hopefully not going to bust in here. But yeah, these are unusual times. I would imagine uh, a lot of companies work through their disaster recovery contingency planning, but I can't think of too many that would have envisioned a global pandemic that it put everyone at home, kind of stay or shelter in place for what we're dealing with right now. That's kind of outside the normal imagination. It has all kinds of impacts. It's fun to see people forced to integrate their business and family life throughout the days. You know, you kind of, it's a throwback to those rural days where people worked at home around the clock. I mean, this is, we say talk about your kids running in, it's fun to have video conferences with folks and have their kids run it because that's very real. It's part of our life. Absolutely. Yeah. A realness or an authenticity and casualness simultaneously. So oh, uh, it's fun. So, yeah, I guess that's fair warning to the listeners at home. We'll try to keep this classy, but we're both scrambling here with the rest of you. So, all right, Kevin, well, uh, let's just start with, you know, your managing director of the Mountain Group. So tell me a little bit about the team that you've built and the types of problems that you help clients with professionally? Well, we're a small consulting firm. We take projects in the Pacific Northwest, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Western Montana. About half of our work is financial restructurings, bankruptcy work. The other 
largest portion of our work is acquisitions or divestitures. We work as a shareholder representative. We're not an investment bank, but we manage transactions on behalf of shareholders who are either buying or selling. And we do a lot of generational transitions. We help companies go through generational transitions. The last area is rapid growth. We do a lot of work with companies that are you know, doubling or tripling in size in a short period of time. So I guess right now your average day might look a little different than what it normally does when you're not locked down. But when you're not in lockdown, what does an average day look like for you and for the Mountain Group? Well, we work anywhere from six to 12 projects at a time. And in each of those projects, there is a team of people assigned. Usually a team is two to three individuals. We put together different expertises depending upon the need. So if, for example, if we're doing a generational transition, we might start with an organizational psychologist who will spend some time with the families developing some communication skills. Then we would work through some efforts on aligning their legal documentation so that work with their attorneys and their estate planners to make sure that they're in line. We'd set up governance structures then that are reflected both in the documents. And that process is usually managed with on-site meetings and with uh, virtual phone calls between the team. We do a lot of work on, on GoToMeeting and through Microsoft Teams on a regular and daily basis. Our contractors live all over the Northwest and our team meetings have always been by video. So to some extent, not all that is changed then. No, actually it hasn't. Most of our people have in-home offices and have had for years, and they work out of their home normally. A lot of the situations we're working with are truly crisis situations. Organizations are at risk or being radically changed. And it's hard to have those conversations over video. I mean, video is good. It's a lot better than a phone call, but there's nothing like sitting face-to-face. And so I normally travel four days a week, and I will be home now probably at the end of next week, it'll be three weeks in a row. That is the most I've been at home in probably 25 years. Right. Things still go with the bride? She still <laughs> likes you? Well, ask me tomorrow, but ask me next Friday. But so far, so good. I've been doing this for 35 years. And Jared, you know, we just kind of got used to it. We have a routine and we have understanding. So there's always adjustments when I come home. But yes, good. She loves me and I love her even when I'm there. <laughs> awesome. So you got your undergraduate at Willamette, but then you went up to UW. So I can look past that. I can look past the Husky uh, heritage. (laughs) I said, you were a beaver, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. One of those beavers from Eugene. Yeah, exactly. So you were kind of finishing up uh, there at UW. I'm kind of curious. When I was finishing up my MBA, my career looks radically different than what I would have ever envisioned as I was picking up that master's in business administration. But so think back to that time when you were graduating with the MBA, what did you envision your career to look like? And I guess kind of walk me through that time frame to what led you to ultimately start the Mountain Group about 24, 25 years ago. Well, I kind of started my career when I was a freshman and undergraduate, when I, when I helped a gentleman start to build a chain of restaurants. And my deal with him had always been instead of shares, I would end up with my graduate school education. He paid me my salary and my graduate school education, So, which he did. He followed through on. And that had kind of preset me to want to come back and be a part of that restaurant chain. But I did take a two-year complete hiatus and went to school. It was a real blessing that the gentleman provided. And then at the end of that period of time, just as I was finishing my MBA, a number of investors flew up to meet me in Seattle and asked that I stop school and come back. And the company got into a lot of financial trouble while I was gone. 
And make a long story short, the creditors hired me to become the CEO and to fix the problem. And I worked out with my professors a way of finishing the last semester, commuting back and forth from Portland and really spending more time in Portland than at school. And I ended up getting my MBA and doing a turnaround. So approximately how old are you at this time when you're now thrust into a turnaround? Part-time MBA student and a turnaround. I was 24. This was a long time ago, 1984, 1985. This company was in a world of hurt. We had 30 restaurants and 10 of them had FED notices, which is a 72-hour eviction notice, forcible entry and detainer. And the IRS was owed trust funds for many months. The vendors were going to deliver. One major vendor had taken a large share of shares for one week's groceries. It was a disaster. It was really a disaster. And we had all kinds of problems. We were able to fix it and sell it. We sold in 1985. Kevin, was that memory of a story that you had shared with me years ago that provoked this desire for conversation with you today? With very little notice, businesses all around the country functionally were just turned off, right? You know, in response to the coronavirus, they just had to close. And so they're dealing with a fair amount of uncertainty, fear, doubt. And so I have to imagine as a 24-year-old CEO dealing with the issues that you were dealing with, that you might have some insights to what you did well, you know, things that you learned along the way, kind of paid some real-world tuition would be my guess. What are some of those things that you learned in that time, in that season, in your turnaround? I mean, which then later kind of probably launched a lot of your career. You're asking me about a very specific case. You know, we've probably worked with 100 different companies in financial distress in the last 20, 25 years. That's a very specific one. I think probably my most vivid memory. I mean, I'm 24 years old. I look 12. I've worked in this company. <laughs> Kevin McAllister from uh, Home Alone. You know, I still can't grow a beard. You and me both. I think my most vivid memory is, so I flew down. I had married the guy's daughter. So I was removing my father-in-law, my uncles-in-laws, my sisters-in-laws. I was making a number of wholesale changes. But I remember as I first got started, sitting in a meeting room and walking around the table and everybody kind of giving me a list of all the issues that they were facing. And I'm just taking copious notes. I'm a note taker. And I get to the end of the last one and there's just this silence. And I look up and everybody's looking at me and they're saying, and they're waiting for me to tell them what to do. (laughs) I'm 24 years old. I don't have a clue. And it was a really great lesson in leadership. I didn't have the ability to tell them what to do, but I did have the ability to create a space for them to figure it out. And that's what we were able to do together. And I think that's carried through with me for the rest of the consulting we do. So let's go back to what you just shared. You said maybe about 100 organizations that you've had the opportunity to help with in the midst of financial crisis over the last 24, 25 years. Does that sound about right? Yep. (laughs) So I guess there's going to be a lot of listeners that are in a unprecedented moment within their own business right now. So Kevin, I guess in all those years of experience, then there's a framework that these business owners could maybe start with. So 25 years of experience, 100 plus turnaround scenarios, what would be the right way for an owner right now in distress to begin to process their situation? Well, I think the first thing they've got to do is come to a conclusion about how long the impacts that they're going to experience is going to last. How long is coronavirus going to be with us? And when people ask us that question, we say somewhere between three to 18 months, but it varies by business and it varies by the kind of impact that the business is experiencing. And so you kind of have to come up with a general framework for how long is the COVID virus going to be around and then explore that on each of the individual impacts. 
And when you're trying to figure out how this is going to impact the business, we really encourage people to look at a whole variety of things. Kind of look at your value chain. Think of the Michael Porter value chain, you know, raw materials, inbound, your actual manufacturing or other operations process, outbound, customers, your own individual practices. How is that going to impact it? You got to think about after you kind of got a sense of how long this is going to last or you have that, you've come to that determination and you're not a scientist. You just kind of have to make your best guess, but you have to give your organization. And I'm talking to a CEO, by the way, Jared. These are things yeah. I would say to a CEO. That's who I'm envisioning that I'm conversing with. You have to kind of look at your own organization and estimate where this is going to impact you. And you look at your entire value chain. Think of the Michael Porter value chain, raw materials, inbound logistics, the actual operations, outbound logistics, customers. What is going to be more difficult because this virus is in place? The first place, of course, is going to be keeping your own people safe. You've got to take steps to make your employees feel comfortable and be safe inside the environment. We have the example of the chip manufacturer in Tualatin that was encouraging people to come to work and now has had COVID virus there inside their facility. It's a hard balance. There are some industries that are absolutely essential. And, you know, we want people to continue to manufacture face masks, et cetera. So you have to create an environment where your people will be safe. But also think about the impact this is having on your vendors. Are there crucial raw materials that are going to become more difficult to get? Maybe because the supply chain is located in an effective country. Maybe it's because it requires a great deal of labor in order to accomplish it. We've seen some agricultural clients be affected by the H-2A visa revocation. They're having a difficult mm. time getting people in to harvest their crops. The other end of it is look at your customers and your customers' customers. How is this impacting them? What ways of delivery of your service or product need to change to make it more convenient for your customers and to make it more effective? We see some efforts on the part of food distributors to change their delivery schedules to accommodate more takeout-like dining options. So those are things that you have to kind of estimate. And then you do a cash flow. This is the core of doing a turnaround. It's all about cash now. It's not about earnings. It's not about net profit. It's about cash flow. And you're looking at how fast do I have to replenish raw material inventory? How can I accelerate accounts receivable? What accounts payable can I negotiate a longer terms on? How do I make that work? It's about financial covenants, looking at your loan covenants, being sure you understand where those triggers are and how those might be affected down the road and what you can do. Create a cash flow forecast that shows the situation without any changes, and then you sit down and you figure out how you can mitigate the impacts that this virus is going to have. What steps can you take in order to recreate your cash flow? The toughest part is there, is when you're trying to develop those changes and solutions that can reaffirm or fix your cash flow. And it's really, really tough. It's really tough to do. Kevin, when you're looking at those cash flow budgets, how often are you revisiting kind of budget versus actual? Well, the cash flow, we typically do two cash flows. One is a monthly cash flow that's kind of our planning cash flow, and then it gets converted into a 13-week cash flow. And you've revamped that as often as is necessary according to the change in circumstances. So you get this cash flow and it's, you start with this basic plan that shows very little change. And you stop and you look at that and you say, okay, what is the reason for this company's existence? What do we do better than anybody else? What's our competitive distinctive? What are the core customers we want to serve? What are the core values we want to create into the world? 
that becomes the foundation, the, the cornerstone. When you start looking at all these changes, you're going to discover that you may have to chip away at some of those core reasons that you exist. And it becomes a challenge and a struggle, but you have to implement those changes. Once you do, you're going to create an actual result. You reforecast. We may reforecast every week. We may reforecast every month. It depends on how fast the circumstances are changing. So I have a couple of quick questions then off of that. So you just mentioned you're going to maybe have to chip away a little bit at the core of why you exist. And yet, probably we'd all acknowledge Jim Collins' preserve the core concept, stimulate change, but preserve the core kind of concepts. But obviously, in the midst of crisis, survival probably supersedes all of that. So I guess, how do you preserve core values, core tenets, and yet preserve life organizationally? Well, you know, it's a very interesting question, and it's not as philosophical as you think, because you run into it quite a bit. There's usually four or five or six things that people want to accomplish with their business. And you have to set those up in some kind of a priority. But there is a point in time where you look at it and you say, no longer does this survival for survival's sake is not necessarily the right ethic. There are times when you look at this and you say, okay, as an organization, we really shouldn't exist anymore. We can't, we can't do what has bound us and kept us together. It's very hard to make those decisions in the middle of a crisis. It's very hard to come to those conclusions. But what you can do is develop right up front, before things get too hairy, some bright lines. And those bright lines would be things like, we will shut down when we cannot, and then you fill in those blanks. So some that I would give you, if you cannot pay your withholding taxes on your payroll taxes, you have reached the point in time where you need to think about shutting down. If you cannot guarantee an exit for your employees that would make you proud to run into them in a month, i.e., for some companies, that means I want to be able to give them a week's worth of severance or two weeks worth of severance. You need to think about shutting down. Those are the kinds of bright lines that companies end up drawing. So when you share these ideas with somebody who's struggling, I mean, obviously, there's maybe a sense of denial. When you're talking to somebody and you're looking at it objectively, how do people typically respond to some of these bright lines? It's really hard. First of all, as a CEO, you're encouraged to be the optimistic guy. I mean, you're the yeah. one that's you're telling everybody, you can do this. It's going to work. It'll be great. <laughs> and integrity demands that you see the situation exactly like it is, neither better nor worse. And you have to mine that integrity as a CEO in a crisis. The other thing that makes it very tough is just basic biology. When you're up against a wall and you're seriously thinking about the survival of your organization, that stress is debilitating. The adrenaline and the hormones that get kicked off by that pressure actually shut off the computational capacity of your frontal cortex. Everything starts to be driven by very primitive parts of your brain. It's not strictly fight or flight, but it's pretty darn close. Your ability to learn, to process information, it all deteriorates. And it's not just you, it's also your staff. We really encourage people to create decision-making groups, to give at least one person the right to veto your decisions. And maybe it's a CFO or it's a trusted board member, but someone who you just upfront say, if this guy doesn't agree to it, I'm going to choose, even if you own 100% of the company, I'm going to choose to listen to him because you're at risk just given the stress of making poor decisions. That makes it tough, but that's also why we bring expertise into the capability. We can provide some of those outside perspectives that are tough to process. You know, those are tough moments, but hopefully you bring a level of emotional independence. You're not going to find a surgeon that's going to operate on their own kids. You know, you don't think as clearly. 
So presumably with those 100 plus turnarounds, you've seen executives, you've seen CEOs handle it well and, and probably some not as well. But are there any tactics or strategies that you've seen that would help somebody stay healthy between the ears in the midst of high stakes and so much stress? What are tactics or strategies one could do right now in this moment? I think there are two groups. One is about yourself personally, and one is about your organization. Now, when it comes to yourself personally, this is the time where you exercise, you eat right, minimal sugar, minimal alcohol. This is times where those basic things we know that we need to do to take care of our body really matter. If you lift weights, not just aerobics, it's not just the runs, but if you lift weights, it will change the chemistry of your body, allows you to process the stress. The other things we really encourage a, a CEO to do is to take time to explore. If they have a faith component to their life, that is, this is the time to explore that. But even if it's not a faith component, one night a week, go volunteer in an organization and do something for a cause that's larger than yourself. It just takes you out of that business mode and it allows for a healthiness that is really important. I had one CEO that after we went through these steps in a really tough situation with he was in, came back to me about three months later and he said, I want you to know that I think you saved my life. I was suicidal and I started reading at a boys and girls club on a Thursday evening and helping them with their homework. And it just totally changed my perspective on life and where I was. And it was just really encouraging. So you got to take care of yourself. There's a second one. I want to talk about the organization. I lead our wealth advisory practice. And the last couple of weeks in the markets have been pretty volatile. Yeah. And there was a reminder that a peer shared with me. It's self-care in a moment like this is not selfish. And so I think self-care not being selfish is put your own oxygen mask on first. I think that makes a tremendous amount of sense. And then the other thing that you just kind of mentioned that I thought was maybe worth adding to was just that it's easy in these moments when the world gets loud to focus on the problems. But the truth is that our blessings whisper, but the problems scream. And that's only amplified right now with emails and social media. So spending a little bit of time with the family or teammates, just talking about the things that are going well, it's very healing and centering. And so I think that moment when you stop worrying about yourself and you go serve somebody else, you get to see all the things in your life that are going well and the opportunity to still give someone something in the midst of your own need is probably a really healthy process. It's really true, Jared. Really true. In terms of team health then, so you're prioritizing self-care, then what can that leader do to keep their team as healthy as possible? One thing the leader needs to do is remember that his teammates are struggling with the same stress he is. And even more so because if you're the CEO, you're in somewhat more control than the guy underneath you. Now, lack of control really exacerbates that adrenaline rush or fear and stress response. The teammate underneath will have a difficult time processing instructions. They'll have a difficult time learning things. If you ask them to go do something, you may have to repeat it two or three times where previously you would never have had to have done that. And it's just the biology of the circumstance. So you have to have patience. There's also a tendency sometimes on the part of some CEOs to solve the problem by bringing everything into his plate or her plate. You know, She's going to grab it all. She's going to bring it into the room and she's going to make all the decisions. That's a killer. You know, This is a time where you manage by setting clear priorities and clear principles. These are the things we're trying to accomplish. Now, the most important thing is to take care of this particular type of customer 
they get highest priority. We're going to allocate most of our resources to this product line or to this customer group. And we want to prioritize those that are going to pay us within 10 days. And that becomes a directive. And how that actually gets carried out gets delegated down. The closer to the action that decisions can get made, usually in a situation like this, the better. And you have to create those principles and priorities and then re-communicate them continually just because of the biology. But you delegate out and downward rather than trying to bring it into control. Those things tend to work. Collect the actuals, watch the metrics, redo the cash forecasts, and adjust as necessary. Do you have any exercises that have helped you extract the priorities that a business leader, business owner should be focusing on? It's really hard to do that generically, Jared. You know, it's just so different. But we tend to start with, okay, what is the core market and what is the core competitive distinctive? And how do we preserve that in the course of this so that when we get done, you're going to end up with a business that you like? In this particular situation, there are some companies that are just shut down and the core business value that they have, the core offering hasn't been changed at all. It just got shut down. Those are ones where you have to kind of assess how fast will it come back and then you build a plan to respond to that. I hired a uh, coach for a personal strategic action plan. And and one of the exercises that he helped me out with, I was struggling with some priority management. It was a wildly simple exercise that moments I'll use over and over again. I've shared it with my team and my clients was uh, simple. It was just a, a matrix, must, should, could, won't. And in that moment, I had just grown blind to things that they were shoulds. I should do them, but they weren't musts. Too many things had ended up in the must category. I hadn't delegated the way that I needed to. And thus, I was overwhelmed. Things weren't getting done. And so that it was an interesting exercise just to reevaluate where I was putting things. Must, should, could, and won't has been a simple way to kind of reevaluate my calendar to get a little bit more clarity around priorities. That's great. It's interesting how those simple little exercises, things that we know we should be doing periodically, That personal hygiene of just organization can really be helpful in a time like this. That's great. And I love that idea that personal hygiene, kind of organizational hygiene, you're never done. Like how many times do you need to brush your teeth? You know, how many times do you need to take a shower? There's those things that you're just, you're never done. It's just hygiene. I love that phrase. Well, so Kevin, I have a question then. So you're 24, you're thrust into this turnaround. And for a lot of people, one is enough. And for you, you turned around and it's become a gift and it's become an aptitude that you've been able to repurpose and bless a hundred plus businesses with. So I guess talk to me a little bit about that. Am I wrong in thinking that a turnaround might be a little bit like a business fire? I think most people run from fires and firefighters seem to run to them. Does that resonate at all or am I off target there? I think, I don't know what it is, Jared. The reason how I got into this, so I sold this business and I sold it to a great group of people who were able to to take it and expand it. So now I'm 25. I maybe look 12 and a half. And, you know, the only people that would hire me were people that were really in trouble. And so I ended up being CEO of a number of turnaround situations. And then I joined a turnaround consultancy. And one thing led to another. When we started this business, this consulting company, we did not want in any way to just do turnarounds. It can be depressing. to to just work with things that aren't working. And you need to have the balance of working with some successes as well. So that's where we got into working with some strategic planning for some rapidly growing companies and doing some of the other work, which has been a very rewarding and nice balance. In any organization, 
there are managers that get put into divisions that aren't performing and asked to make them work. And that's a turnaround of sorts. It's a little bit different because the overall organization's survival isn't at risk. But CEOs and organizations do that. I think the advantage of doing it as a consultant, the thing that keeps me doing it, is the thrill of learning so much new stuff each and every assignment. Now, I get a kick out of meeting all the variety of people, being able to participate with them at a significant moment in their life, and the opportunity to learn about so many different industries. I mean, I've been all over the world. I've bought city water systems. We've built power plants. We've looked at airports. We've done printing companies. We've done medical manufacturing food distribution, food processing. I mean, just a whole range of wonderful and interesting businesses. Kevin, I should probably fess up that I have told people that I think you might be the Dos Equis guy, the world's most interesting man. <laughs> Why? I don't feel like that, but go ahead. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So I'll throw you a curveball here. Let's see how you do with this. Knowing what you know and all the different projects and businesses that you've been a part of, if you're 40 years old and you had a pile of cash, what business or industry would you jump into? If you had a pile of cash, you're 40 years old, knowing what you know today, what business do you go buy? What industry? You're asking for me based on my personal interests rather than kind of as a general piece of advice. Yeah, correct. And just to kind of get to know you a little bit better here. So the, all the different projects and the different types of businesses that you've gotten to see, what's of interest to you? I think probably the most interesting business and probably the most Financially challenging, but the most interesting business. You're going to wait for it. Wait for it. I'm on the edge of my seat. Sewage treatment. Oh, my goodness. Didn't see that coming, did you? No, no. It would have been a 100 guesses, and I wouldn't have even gotten in the arena. There is so much good that can be done providing water and sewage services to cities and rural areas. Water is the restricted resource in the world. It has been for years, of course a political issue in the Middle East, it's going to become more of a political issue in other parts of the world. Even in countries like England, there is so much what they call non-revenue water, water that goes into the pipe but doesn't get into the house. And there is a potential for so much good to be done by providing fresh, clean water in, in Latin America and Mexico, providing sewage treatment services. It can be done at a cost-effective way so many municipalities use the Water Bureau, even Portland, you know, so many municipalities use the Water Bureau as a way of raising money for other causes. And sometimes it's political payback or graft. Mm-hmm. So it's a very tough industry. But when you go into a city, we bought the water system in the city of Manila, and it was amazing the good that you can do into places where people don't have water and they don't have sewer. It cuts infant mortality, it eliminates disease. The quality of people's life goes up. Absolutely. I was actually spending some time reading about where some different projects that the Gates Foundation was focused on. And to your point, a lot of the emerging markets, they just don't have modern sanitation. And the current infrastructure really wouldn't allow for what we would think of as kind of a sewer treatment facility similar to what we have today. So how do you scale something? Because to your point, there's monstrous societal and health benefits to being able to manage that a little bit more effectively. So initially, I was a little bit surprised that the Gates Foundation was so engaged with the issue, but quickly realized it's the opportunity for impact. Well, think about the Congo. I mean, millions of people crowded into an area. There's no effective sewage. I mean, those kinds of things. When a person is sick, 
they can't be productive. And I think there's a lot of innovation being done in the area to create technologies that allow for scalable, small-scale deployment of treatment facilities, that everything from composting toilets to small neighborhood treatment facilities. Some of the things designed in the developed world, for example, that use UVC light don't work very well in a rural area in the Congo, but there are solutions that are coming along. It's a fascinating area that I think produces a lot of human health. Yeah, interesting. All right, so we're going to continue to ping pong all around here with the world's most interesting man, Kevin Adams. Uh, so, Kevin, <laughs> I'm going to shift gears on you entirely. Now we're going to go psychology. As we've had conversations on this show, we'll often talk about identity and the role that it plays in our ability to experience success. There's the idea that I and others have put forward that there's a component of success that is just understanding what brings you joy, joy being different than happiness, but joy, achievement significance and legacy. And so I kind of want to talk about what you might think as it pertains to identity within business leadership during really difficult times, because I guess I'll start with just some personal vulnerability. When I don't feel like I'm winning in the office, it has a negative impact on me in ways that probably shouldn't. It's not healthy. No one created Corona, right? But and it's impacted your business. So I guess how have you seen people navigate identity effectively in a healthy way in the midst of highs and lows in the business community? Oh, wow. This is where the stress comes from, I think. It's yeah. this, this sense of what they're fearing is the failure. You know, the CEO fears being known as a failure. I have watched so many CEOs. The most common reaction of a CEO gets himself in trouble. This is not a COVID thing. This is my plan isn't working kind of thing is to do the same thing he's always done with more intensity. It's just silly. You're just driving the plane into the ground faster. We're headed down, put on the throttle. Driven by that fear. It's driven by that fear. Yeah. It's debilitating. Even someone who doesn't think that they get their satisfaction from being the CEO of a company, all of their relationships, everything they have, or the way everybody has treated them all these years, whether they know it or not, is in part affected by the fact that they're the CEO of this company. And so if that is, as you bobble that role, those relationships start to change and you can feel it as a CEO. It's a tough, tough, tough place. And you have to root yourself in understanding that you are more than just that CEO. You have to root yourself into the value that comes from being a father and being a husband and the contributions you make to the community beyond that. And that there is a significance that comes from bringing good into the world that isn't dependent upon being CEO. Certainly watched clients, and it sounds like a good portion of your business these days, Kevin, is, is around business succession and exit planning. And it's interesting how you're spending a career building this business and you position it for an exit. When that time comes, people are kind of caught flat-footed that they have to go rediscover a sense of purpose, passion, and identity. And the exit maybe wasn't all that they had anticipated it to be. Has that been your experience at all? I think the transition out of a CEO role has some of those same attributes, but it has one other one that's even harder sometimes to swallow, Jared. And that's when you've created a company and when you turn it over to someone else, it is going to be different than what it would be if it stayed with you. It may be much better, in which case you feel like a heel for not having seen the things the new guy is doing. Or it may be much worse, in which case you feel horrible that you that this successor is taking your company into the ground. It will be different than if you had it. 
And that letting go, that realizing that it's no longer your responsibility is as hard as finding that next alternative way. But we really encourage people. We do a lot of, as I said, we do a lot of sales side as well as buy side, but sales side. When the sales side CEOs, one of the first things we tell them is take six months, maybe a year. Don't make any decisions. The worst things that happen is when the CEO immediately takes all this newfound wealth and runs out and buys a bunch of businesses to prove to people he can do it again. It inevitably doesn't work. Just take a break, take a breath and start to discover yourself and what you really value. I had one CEO who started providing a counseling, guidance counseling at a local high school and discovered that he really liked it and went back to school and now that's what he does. I had another party become a small business consultant. Another party has become a professional board member. There are other worlds out there and they're different. Being the CEO is a season of life and it comes to an end. That's good stuff. All right, Kevin, I guess with the time that we have left, I just want to kind of toss you the ball here. You're getting a lot of phone calls right now, probably a lot of clients that are dealing with difficult decisions and some anxiety. Do you have any kind of freestyle thoughts here in terms of what business leaders should be thinking about in this moment of coronavirus or maybe some of the questions that you're getting asked by your clients right now in this moment of uncertainty? I guess if I had to highlight two or three things that we've touched on them all, but you do have to take care of yourself. You cannot process what's coming at you if you're not spending time exercising, eating right, really spending some time living for something bigger than yourself, at least one day a week. week. I think the second thing is you have to have integrity. You need to see it exactly like it is, neither better nor worse. And people need to follow you as a leader. They need to know that you're looking at it clear eyed. And the third is you've got to have a cash flow forecast. If you don't know how to have one, or for some reason you don't have an accounting staff that can produce one, call your CPAs, get some assistance. You have to have a cash flow forecast. You can Google 13 week cash flow forecasts. The Turnaround Management Association has examples that are available. You have to have a cash flow class to manage this crisis. All right. And if people have heard something from the world's most interesting man, Kevin Adams, today, how would they get a hold of you? The best way to reach me is by email. And I'm sure they can get that through DeLap. All right. Yes, they can. We can hook them up. We know how to track you down. And I guess I always like to leave one of these conversations with a couple of resources. I'm an avid reader, and I think that you actually read a lot more than I do. So if you're thinking of a couple of your favorite books, If you got to assign book reports for people here while they're stuck at home with coronavirus uh, stay or shelter in place, what two or three books would you recommend to business leaders to knock out during this purposeful pause? The Last Indian War. (laughs) The Last Indian War. All right. So I'm intrigued. Give me like the 60 second, 30 second version of The Last Indian War. The Last Indian War is a great book that was written about the Nez Pierce final battles between and their trip from the Wallows up to the Canadian border. And what's fascinating is the Nez Pierce really didn't have a leadership structure. They had a group of, I'm going to call them teams or families, came together, coalesced and moved forward. And how Chief Joseph created leadership and how that worked amidst incredible pressure and the way in which misinformation was seen on both sides, Indian and the white man in the area, And how it led to some really horrific examples is a great reminder to leaders to be sure that their intelligence about circumstances is accurate and to avoid rash actions. The Last Indian War. 
The second book I would suggest is called Antisocial. <laughs> this is a great book about the power of social media to influence and change minds. And it is a dynamic that's playing out among our employees, especially if you have a large organization and you're trying to communicate a concept. There's some really interesting elements of how ideas get adopted and get communicated between parties. In a time when there's lots of rumors and lots of things flowing around, there's some great lessons in it. So antisocial and the last Indian war would be two I'd recommend. All right. I'll knock those out and then we'll come back. So you hold me accountable. I'll, I owe you a book report on antisocial in 15 days. All right. You're on. <laughs> you're on. All right. Hey, Kevin Adams, thank you so much for sharing a little bit of your wisdom and experience with our audience today. I'm sure that everyone's going to be walking away with a bunch of insights and ideas and, and resources, tools to share with their teams and insights to personally apply in their own life. So Kevin, stay safe. Thank you so much for our conversation today. You're welcome, Jared. It's great to be here.